Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Oh, there's a lovely sound after the driest April I ever remember and no April My thanks to this At week's last, sponsor, a bit of rain. Hayloft Plants Limited, on my heavy soil, those uh, clods can just get moistened nicely and then I can catch them on the dry. Just hit them with the cultivator and they should just crumble. Ideal for sowing and planting. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries along the way. As you heard, we're getting some showers at last and I could really do with a steady overnight rain rather than the night frosts which continue relentlessly. Oh, that cold really gets to my bones somehow. 2021 has proved a demanding spring weather-wise. With the wind so strong uh, from bank holiday Monday late afternoon through to Tuesday, we had to take some lovely Sonetti plants back under cover to avoid uh, having them thrashed to pieces uh, up on that hilltop at uh, Hyde Hall. Fortunately, the large pansy trial was close enough to the ground to avoid excessive damage, although uh, when you really get down to do the deadheading, you can see uh, some of the large flowers have been bruised. I heard the description of uh, pansy flowers fluttering in the breeze uh, from one visitor as like butterflies. And goodness, yes, they did watching the big petals on some of the uh, colossal series of pansy, uh, I could see exactly what was meant. Uh, Back home, escaping the gales by diving into the polytunnel, a loud appreciation of the first fragrant sweet peas in flower. Weeks ahead of those outside, it has to be said. But uh, come on, if I'm uh, starting to pick sweet peas in the polytunnel, then summer can't be far away, can it? Several September-sown cauliflower, the uh, cultivar all year round, were planted in the polyhouse border, uh, and one will be large enough to cut for Sunday lunch. Well, cauliflowers grown in protection make uh, huge plants, but it's space which can be provided pretty well, Uh, through the winter anyhow, and when cleared by mid-May, it makes space for tomatoes and uh, all the tender summer crops. 
I've got a couple of large pots of arums, uh, Xantodicia ethiopica, and uh, one has three huge opening blooms. Goodness, they do look uh, pure. And I've got the uh, Gerbera Sweet series also coming into flower. All they need really is a bit of protection from the wet during the winter and they will survive for several years. It's quite useful to have this uh, perennial colour. Now this week, uh, by way of a change, I thought you might like to accompany me on a garden advisory visit. I mean, answering gardening queries wherever we go is par for the course. Yeah, although there are times, you know, if you're sitting on the beach with the family, for example, when we would rather not be fielding questions about why somebody's Bramley apples aren't fruiting. Answering gardening queries is the easy bit, really. More difficult is quickly assessing the capabilities of the questioner. How much experience do they have gardening? Are they listening to what you're suggesting and and are they understanding and absorbing your advice? Are your recommendations within their capabilities in time, enthusiasm to carry them out uh, and so on? I mean, let me set the scene of a a typical example. Uh, Recently, I went to a Victorian wall garden in Sussex It was half a mile or so from the large country house with a mature couple living in what was the head gardener's cottage. They have best part of two acres, a hectare of uh, enclosed former vegetable and fruit garden sloping to the south and uh, also a bit to the east. And all of that area that was cultivated down to grass. They do have help one day a week, uh, and cutting the grass must take up uh, a fair bit of that time. But entering the garden gate uh, with the cottage just on the right hand in the corner of the wall garden, uh, there was a huge fig that produced so much foliage it blocks all the light into the kitchen through the summer. It has three limbs as thick as my thigh Unfortunately, some young supple stems growing from the base. I suggested that the garden owners tied those over to the horizontal to run under the window and uh, just carefully saw out one large limb each year so that uh, in three years' time, All those big branches would be locked back and the energy pushed into the horizontal younger growth. You know, when you tie stuff down uh, so it runs horizontally, that slows the sap, it encourages lateral growth uh, and may help to get uh, a really strong growing plant like that fig under some kind of control. But please do remember... The harder you prune healthy plants, the stronger the regrowth is likely to be. I mean, we hadn't got many yards past that fig. The next thing on the agenda was some small flower borders just across the path. And they had a a number of really good uh, hardy perennials uh, scattered through these beds, but being swamped by self-seeding grasses. 
Now quite a number of stronger growing self-seeding grasses are like dogs. Well disciplined as youngsters and kept under control, they're a pleasure to everybody. Let run wild, they're a curse to themselves and uh, everyone near them. All I could suggest was to let a, a big clump of peonies, for example, to flower. I mean, they'll do that in six weeks or so. And then, uh, well into the summer, lift the whole lot. Tease out the uh, invasive self-sown uh, grasses. Split the peonies, so there would be, uh, I would think, three from the big clump I was looking at. And replant in some fresh soil. The peonies would love that. And it's all you could do, really, to regain control. Once those uh, herbaceous plants had been lifted in their season and the grasses removed, and then the perennials replanted, of course the hoe would be needed to uh, eliminate more self-seeding grasses, or the invasion would be repeated in no time. There were several large woody lavenders and rosemary too close by uh, and they would be better duplicated by rooting some cuttings to get new plants and then the old timers dug out along with the intertwined uh, invasive grasses. I mean most of um, those uh, semi-woody herbs, lavender and rosemary, they root quite easily both as softwood cuttings just snapping a piece out and uh, popping them in this time of the year into uh, seed and propagating compost. Pop them uh, into uh, a white polythene bag on a sunny windowsill and they would root quite quickly. And even easier, I suppose, if you wait and take half-ripe cuttings, that's young growth that's starting to get woody, break some of that off and just stick it in the ground and you'd probably have enough root to serve uh, the replacement purposes. Then as we uh, ventured further into this wall garden, there were some ancient fan-trained cherry and an out-of-control wisteria. When uh, elderly, once fan-trained and now neglected stone fruits uh, have massive bare branches, they are pretty well beyond redemption. Sooner or later, someone will have to bite the bullet, take the whole lot out. And of course, you can't sensibly plant stone fruits where there was stone fruit before. Although uh, this couple had got uh, a digger in to uh, sort out some of the drains. And you could, I suppose, whip those uh, old trees out and also take out uh, a cubic metre or two of soil where they were and replace that with the fresh soil well i suppose this list uh, will be jobs enough for the relatively uh, new garden owners uh, and uh, another visit will be made in uh, due course no doubt to see what progress has been made my guest on the podcast today is Dinah Bott, who's chairman of the Victor Hugo Guernsey Society. Now, I have to admit, um, my education in many areas is sadly lacking. And whilst I knew the name Victor Hugo, I had uh, no true understanding of what a remarkable man he was. 
and no doubt, Dinah, you can put us right in that respect today. Well, yes, in Guernsey, Victor Hugo, very surprisingly, really, because he's probably the most French of all French writers and he's probably the most popular French writer in France, he spent 15 years living in Guernsey. Uh, four years living in Jersey as well, actually. And this was because in 1848, there was a, this was the year of revolutions and, and, and France was no exception. And the French king was forced to abdicate. There was a, a, an, an election and Napoleon's nephew, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, was elected president. Anyway, he enjoyed himself in that job so much that he didn't want to give it up and staged a coup d'etat eventually. Victor Hugo, who was by this time left-wing, very left-wing, decided that he, he did not like this. In fact, he was aghast. And um, he organised an insurrection, which, did, which failed, and then was forced to, to flee with a false passport on a train with his manuscripts, including the manuscript of his most famous work, which is Les Miserables. And this is how, why people know today Victor Hugo, because he wrote Les Miserables and because it is the most successful musical, I think, of all time, Les Mis. Really, Victor Hugo coming here, living in Guernsey, is an extraordinary thing. But in the end, he was forced out of Belgium, which was the first place he went uh, to escape. And then he, he went to Jersey and the, the British government um, kicked him out of Jersey. So he had to move very quickly and he decided on, on Guernsey. And then he stayed here. He, he, he realised it suited him very well. It was quiet. Um, he could think. He didn't have to do too much politics here. There weren't too many people here to bother him. And he was able from here to campaign very successfully for all his humanitarian causes and all his political causes and still be a thorn in the side of his nemesis over in France, who by this time was the <laughs> emperor. And uh, he, so, so, in fact, he, he, he bought a house. It's the first house he ever bought. Because his friends in Guernsey told him that if he bought a house, it would be much more difficult to, to banish him from Guernsey. And um, so he, he did that. He bought a house which is known as Hauteville House. There was a posh Guernsey family in the same road, the Toppers, and they already had a Hauteville House. And Victor Hugo, first of all, called his house Liberty Terrace and then Liberty House. And he said, no, I'm going to call it Hauteville House. But there already was one about three doors down. And this annoyed the, the Toppers immensely. Nevertheless, Victor Hugo persisted in calling it Hauteville House. And it's, that's how it's known today. It's a very famous house, one of the most famous writers' houses in the world. It's the most beautiful place in the French city of um, Paris. I've just renovated it. And it is the, the most beautiful place, extraordinary place, because Victor Hugo was an artist as, as well as a dramatist and a novelist and a poet and a humanitarian. He was a most extraordinary artist in many things way before his time. And he's created this house which is, is full of his own designs and drawings, very often of flowers and birds and a garden to go with it, which is literally an extension of the house, which has inscriptions and so on in, in, in it, as, as the house does. You know, it's an absolutely extraordinary thing to see here, and we've, we're, it's wonderful for us in Guernsey that he's here. And um, our society, the Victor Hugo and Guernsey Society, is a group of volunteers who try and make Victor Hugo's work more known in the sort of anglophone sphere, because lots of people who speak English, of course, can't really read a huge amount of Victor Hugo. So that's what, that's what we do. Uh, Dinah... Just to go back to the house, um, I was looking on screen. There's several rooms which are really absolutely uh, outstanding, uh, fabulously beautiful. Does the uh, Victor Hugo Society have a website that people can see some of these things? 
Well, we don't. We have a website in which has got a lot about our garden, which we've just created, um, and it's got a lot about Victor Hugo himself in English. Lots of information. If you wish to find out about Hopeville House, you can go to Hopeville House's own website, which is a very good website in English and French. So you've got to, comp- uh, to find all about it, and ex- each of the rooms is explained and the garden is explained. Right, and and now we come really to the nub of this interview, because you may not be aware. Uh, I'm entirely blinkered when it comes to life and only see things through the world of gardening spectacles. Um, And you are working very hard in uh, that direction with uh, a new Victor Hugo garden. Can you tell us something about that? That's right. This was a a really fantastic project to be involved with because although Victor Hugo created his own garden at Hopeville House, as they say, it's um, an extension of the house. It's an important part of the house. It's almost like, well, here's another room. And when we say that in the sense of um, garden design, this really in artistic and cultural and intellectual sense is another room. The house is full of flowers. And the garden is full of flowers. And Victor Hugo had, his, had a famous room called the Lookout, the glass room that he built, to all, in order to be closer to nature and closer to God. He, he'd almost live, it's sort of perched over the cliff and it looks out into across to France. And he was able to, that way, to, to, so to feel closer to God. And in the, and, and in the house, he brought nature in. Um, so it, it's really very interesting. And we, we were given um, a, a piece of land, a very long border with a beautiful sweep of steps in between it which lies between Victor Hugo's iconic statue in um, a Victorian park called Candy Gardens here, a very beautiful park, which is very well maintained. But this particular border hadn't really been looked at for a long time. And uh, we were given this border to use as, as a garden. And um, then we had to decide what to do with it because there are already a lot of existing shrubs and trees, and particularly camellias. Victor Hugo very much like the camellias of Guernsey. They're one of our specialities. And he said that the camellias uh, grow, grow like trees, and they still grow like trees. We have many, many old varieties of camellia. And those camellias were planted in the 1890s. And we, we had those, those camellias there, which, of course, we didn't want to remove. So we had to think what to do. Um, Victor Hugo himself would have wanted probably a garden which was full of weeds and brambles where nature ran amok. Well, we couldn't have that in a, a park. So what we thought we'd do is we'd create a garden which reflected Victor Hugo's life and work and was in a sense educational. So although it's extremely pretty, lots of very nice flowers and lovely flowers actually and plants, um, we, we also have quotations in it and we have particular cultivars which have names which reflect his work or his family and um, with QR codes. So you can actually um, look on our website, the, the, the Victor Hugo and Guernsey Society website, and then you can find out about the way that these flowers are um, reflect or evoke Victor Hugo in some way or another. So it's really an homage to Victor Hugo. And we hope that when people visit it and walk along this very long border, they will be encouraged to go and visit Hopeful House and to take part in a, a trail which uh, Visit Guernsey have organised, which will take you around the island. Because Victor Hugo was very, very influenced by Guernsey when he was here. He wrote a novel, as well as Les Miserables, which he published when he was here in 1862. He wrote a novel called Toilers of the Sea. And this novel is dedicated to the people of Guernsey. So it's imbued with folklore, with the real people that he knew in Guernsey. And the centre of the garden is um, a really lovely little square 
uh, of willow fencing. The willow fencing was made here. And, it, and we've got heritage vegetables in the garden because it reflects the heroine, of, if we could call her that, of, of Toilers of the Seas called Desruchette. And she has her own garden. She's too pretty and fancy to dig it, but she's allowed to water it. All sorts of links there. Dinah, the, the research that was put into this surprised me. Was it um, Victor Hugo's grandson, uh, Jean-Baptiste Hugo, who went through all of the works and counted the number of plants that were referred to? Uh, yes, that's a, that's, a, that's a separate thing, actually. Um, Victor Hugo's great-great-grandson is a, a Jean-Baptiste Hugo. He went through his great-grandfather, Victor Hugo's, works and listed all the flowers and plants. And this is one of the great things about Victor Hugo. Although people may think he's very old-fashioned, he's actually extremely modern in many ways, very contemporary. And he believed that um, we should treat animals, plants, birds and people kindly, because if we don't, we will be in trouble. He predicted the effects of climate change, that they would rebound on us. He had some very advanced um, philosophical ideas, which, you know, that, that all the world shared one soul, and we were all striving towards the ideal in the same way. And it's all very it, philosophically very interesting. But his view of, of small things is a very contemporary view that, that we shouldn't interfere with nature, that nature knew, knows what she wants to do and that we should learn from nature. And he said the fact that nature was his Bible and he was very keen on conservation and recycling. And if anybody who knows Les Miserables well will know the piece about the nettles and we've planted nettles in this garden because Monsieur Madeleine speaks about nettles and um, how... They can be used in, in recycling, but you shouldn't just cut, just cut them down. There are many, many useful things you can do with nettles. And just that piece, it shows Victor Hugo's way of thinking. Very interesting. He's really a conservationist and a, a, we call him a proto-environmentalist because there was no such thing as environmentalist in his time. But had he been living now, he would have been an environmentalist with his oh. views. I mean, he particularly liked buttercups, I think I heard you say on the Zoom recently, yeah. Buttercups, they're called golden buttons in French. Um, and the, the, the buttercups and the wildflowers, like the periwinkle and the bindweed, he evokes these very often in his poetry, and particularly after the death of his brother. He died in 1837 and, and wasn't very much older than Victor Hugo, a couple of years. And um, Victor Hugo was very upset by this and, and began to talk about his time when he was young with his mother in their garden in Paris, which was a, a ruined convent. Victor Hugo liked the wild part where he could go with his brothers and investigate all the animals and birds and, and learn from it. As I say, he, he, he uh, really felt he was learning from nature. Are there any plants which um, he set out? Victor Hugo said that he would not return to France until liberty returned, because liberty was the most important thing for Victor Hugo. He said, let's save liberty, liberty saves the rest. So for him it was freedom, especially freedom of expression, was very, very important to him. Napoleon III, his, say his enemy, had offered um, that all the exiles from uh, 1851, which is when they all had to leave, could come back in 1859. Victor Hugo said, no, I'm not coming back because you're still there. You know, <laughs> it's not free. There's, there's censorship. You know, he hated his work being censored. It was often censored in France. You know, I'm not coming back and, that's, and I'm not going to come back until you've gone. And in 1870, he did fall because this was the Franco-Prussian War. Victor Hugo returned to France and he had two grandchildren and he had them with him in, in Guernsey when he planted what he called the, the Oak of the United States of Europe. Because Victor Hugo 
and this is again very contemporary, but he he was one of the first people really to promote the idea of a united Europe. And if you go to Hopeville House, the oak of the United States of Europe, which is still there, yes, there's there's uh, plenty of connections with these things. Yeah, uh, we have to make mention too, I think, to uh, Raymond Everson, um, great clematist uh, enthusiast living on the island. Uh, I think he's been quite helpful, hasn't he, in the uh, Victor Hugo (laughs) Garden? (laughs) Oh, it was marvellous, yes, because I was so pleased uh, that Raymond agreed to to help with it and design design it for us. And, of course, he's been here, done such a lot for the island with his his clematis uh, nursery and um, the the, the business that he he runs from here. And he's such a a nice man, such a lovely man, and so knowledgeable uh, and modest. And uh, so he's done a huge amount of work, actually physical work, and he's, he's dug, dug up and, and, and planted. He said to me, can you find me some plants that, that fall in, you know, fit the criteria of being something to do with Victor Hugo? So I gave him a great long list of plants. And of course, some we couldn't actually find, some we couldn't source because uh, they tend not to be in Australia or whatever, this kind of thing. And, and as, as you know, these old varieties of plants are, are not easy to come by. And so he was given this list and he had to make of it what he could. And he's made a very, very good job of it, I must say. So that this is this is a strange, it's a eclectic way that the, the garden was put together. But it's it's extremely pretty, and we're, we're pretty proud of it. And he's he's done a really wonderful job. Yeah, he's enthusiastic about everything. Is Raymond, but but we may be able to help him because he was looking for uh, iris uh, campari, um, bred by William Campani. So somebody listening with a bit of luck may have one of those compact iris. Uh, tucked away somewhere. Yes, William Capon, he had, I think, a hundred varieties of iris that he bred. Um, so uh, there must be some more out there somewhere. Dinah, I can't wait to come to Guernsey to see it for myself. I've had me two jabs and I'll be over there to walk the Victor Hugo trail. I know, I can't wait to say hello to you too. It's great. <laughs> thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you yeah. for asking me. It's been a pleasure, great pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. And the tail piece? Well, a quote for the week from Leslie Hall. An optimistic gardener is one who believes that whatever goes down must come up. (laughs) If only. Soils have remained very cold this spring and if you sowed parsnip early and there's no sign of uh, seedlings, uh, it could well be advisable to sow another batch. 
now temperatures are beginning to rise. I hope when uh, we speak again next week that we'll have had a bit more rain and some nice warm days and nights. My thanks this week to sponsors Hayloft Plants Limited, Pershaw, Worcestershire, to my producer, Rich Jarman, and of course to you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.